Okay, well, yeah, and there's some um, guest speakers that are coming as well to talk about their experience um, with what Terry sort of just mentioned. So hopefully you'll find that, that interesting. And in some ways, I don't know that that's detracting from a creed. I think that's the kind of thing that creeds hopefully inform. Right, so we'll talk more about that today. But um, if I can just pick up where we left off a little bit, and I, and, and I, I may have a different place in my mind than you do, um, we're just sort of talking about um, the history of the Nicene Creed, the diversity in the Christian communities throughout the Roman Empire before, um, what creeds do, how they sort of necessarily create an orthodox theology and a, the word's called heterodox, a different way of thinking, a different meaning bad, not different meaning interesting, and that there was a response from the creed that some people sort of left into the desert because they thought the church had been compromised, talked about how Constantine had oppressed in himself intentionally, oppressed the Donatists in 318, even uh, physically repressing people leading up to the creed. And I gave you a little bit of history on what the sort of the central issue was at Nicaea, and that was the nature of Jesus. All right, and reminder that that position was basically fought out between the Bishop of Alexandria and a priest named Arius. And, and the Arius is important because his position that Jesus is a created being and therefore God is like the emperor who rules over Jesus and the Holy Spirit is under Jesus, hierarchical within the Trinity itself, um, that became the position of, of sort of um, blasphemy, heterodoxy that the Roman Catholic Church had to worry about for a number of, number of, number of years. So let me see if I can't find this. There we go. Okay. Also got to get into the creedal language just. I don't know why that's happening. Isn't it great to have like a, a sound and audio guild at St. Thomas? It would be if they could do the job right. When I sit still, it'll stop. I think when I'm moving around. Oh, there we go. Look at that. Yay, Audio Guild. Okay. So we got to talk a little bit even about the introductory language, and that's where we're going to continue on today. Um, I told you, remember, that in 1976, when the new prayer book was sort of being uh, released and, and some churches were doing it early, that, that it didn't get really printed until like 79, um, the creed changed from I believe in God, the Father Almighty, to we believe. And the significance of that was really, really strong. And for some people, that represented uh, a major loss. But, but I just want to remind you of how hopeful I think that is. Uh, the truth is, and I know people's stories well up front enough, having been here a couple of years, and that'll increase as the more we're together, not everybody believes every line in the creed every week. So I think in some ways it's really neat to say that we believe it, even if I don't. <laughs> Somebody does, even mm. if I don't. And on the weeks, they carry me, and hopefully I'll be there to carry them. I just think that's sort of a lovely theology of what we do in church, right? We carry one another. Um, we carry one another through things like this. The other thing that I told you is that belief is a tough thing. And just to remind you, we usually say belief is a yes or no. That can be one of the functions of a creed is actually to um, sort of create an either or situation of facts. That's not really the design of, of, of the creed, I didn't think, um, because belief is not a cognitive or factual assent, but it really is about things like um, fidelity, a way of seeing the world, and um, stewardship. Uh, so that's right off the bat when we say we believe, 
this is not cognitive, and I think that's where the creed becomes really difficult for people is to say, well, I don't know if that's factually true, and, and I don't think that the creed is about, pardon me for saying this if it's offensive, but I don't think the creed is about factuality. I think the creed is about our vision for the world and about how we intend to be stewards of that vision and how we intend to be faithful with it and how it's going to inform the way, frankly, we treat each other and choose to come back to God or come to God to begin with. So we believe uh, in one God. And this is, the, this is the key phrase we all get, is this essential monotheism. Now, if we just stopped at we believe in one God, it would be a lot easier for us to get along with Islam and Judaism, right? If we stop at just succinct monotheism. Of course, the rest of the creed is going to explain the oneness of God in contradictory terms. <laughs> um, the creed, you know, for one of the things that followed Nicaea is this actual, uh, is a sort of confusing bit that says that God is no more one than three. Try explaining that. <laughs> God is no more one than three, but we believe in one God. This is a, a sort of the, 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 the council statement on the necessity of the Trinity. But in the creed itself is the phrase that even though God ends up being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, diverse, but in communion, their fundamental oneness is more important than their fundamental threeness. And we're going to explore that the Council says that the Trinity is not a useful tool in helping us understand what God is like. It's not a model that we've created to help us understand different roles of God. The Council says the Trinity is true for God, whether it helps our understanding or impairs it. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? The Council's not concerned with helping us in our cognition. The Council is concerned with what is true about God. And what they've decided is, it's not like Jesus is one aspect of God, and the Holy Spirit is another aspect of God, and of course they're just part of the same God. They decided that Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit and God the Father are three distinct entities that somehow are united into a single Godhead. There's really no way you can logically explain, I don't know, some, some of you are, are scientists and I'm not. Maybe there's a scientific principle about that. I, I'm unaware of it. Um, but, but the idea here is that, that God is fundamentally one and fundamentally three. And that's in the first line. Because again, the rest of the creed is going to go on to say who that one God is and how that one God is comprised. The next phrase, right, the Father. This is really important to spend a little bit of time on. Particularly because um, a lot of what we do in recent theological models is try to sort of unpack this. So let me just ask if anybody's read the book The Shack. Um, if you've not read the book, The Shack, it's, it's, it's not even thinly veiled. It's not veiled at all. It's, it's sort of a, a reconfiguration of, of theology. And it's really written by somebody who's probably more of the evangelical bent. And uh, it's, it's a way of reconceiving God around a tragedy that happened for real in their own life. And part of what The Shack talks about is um, how God appears. And so... Um, for the author of the shack, God appeared as a large southern black woman, which was really confusing because the author was expecting God to be masculine. The Holy Spirit, incidentally, appeared as sort of a thin, quiet Asian woman, and Jesus appeared as, well, Jesus, as a man who was maybe Jewish-looking, depending on how that gets described. Part of what that book was doing, I think, is part of what's been happening in um, 
Divinity School Seminary World Christianity, which is asking us to really reconsider some of the traditional uh, images and language we've put on God. So I think for most people, uh, particularly in the Western tradition, God is like the depiction on the Sistine Chapel. Wizened, masculine, swarthy. <laughs> And, and part of the reason we do this is because in the Bible, God is referred to in, in not completely, but in majority masculine terms. And the word, my father, Abba, which is something used by Jesus, is one of those terms. And so traditionally we have this language that God is father. And the creed uses it. But how it's used and the significance of that for then and now, I think, are really important. So maybe it's helpful to think about how it's used then. The term father is really referring to the patrifamilias, right? And so in the Roman, the Roman kinship structure, a family could actually be comprised not just of the nuclear family, but of the extended family, living in a, basically a miniature compound. And the head of the compound sort of is the patriarch, the patrifamilias, but that's not the person who ultimately says the rules and has none of the responsibility. The patrifamilias is the person whose job is to ensure that the people, the family unit is being educated, cared for, and ultimately making sure they're, they're nourished and growing into a full stature of life. So think about the role instead of just the gender for a second. If I asked you who in your family union played that role, who would you say? My mother. How many of you would say your mother ensured your education, your nourishment, your overall health, and basically ruled over all things regarding children? That was my mother. My father uh, was, the, was the breadwinner, even though I had double career parents. So, so that, was, that was funny. But in some ways, the patrifamilias now really has become the mother. I just want to point that out. That role has become motherly. The creed, and it's important to remember, if we take language just at the surface level, this does reinforce a masculine system, but I want you to think about what's behind the creed. What's behind the creed is the idea that the role of God the Father is our joy, our nourishment, our upbringing, and our station in life. That's a pretty bold claim about God's care for us right off the start, instead of that God is where the buck stops. Does that make sense what I'm saying? One way we can hear the language is as re reinforcing a gender norm, but another way we can hear it is actually reversing a gender norm and thinking about functions and roles. This has become increasingly important for theologians because many of us know this. Um, if God is our father and that's who God has to be, and we had poor fathers at home, it's really difficult for people to relate to a heavenly father when they didn't have a good human one. Now, I know we can say, well, we can't let the poor experiences of some people change the Bible's theology, but I think it's really important to engage on what the actual theology of Scripture and the Creed are. Not the masculinity, but the role. I don't know if that's helpful for you. Have any of you prayed, uh, or, or in or sort of the way of the shack, have any of you attempted to envision God as feminine instead of masculine? For those of you who have run that experiment, how did it work for you? If you're willing to share. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like the gender is a box we put in. He's bigger. 
And see, this is really interesting to think about, and, 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 I, and I'm not being mean, uh, but this is important, because I've spent some time on that too, but I want you to listen to the phrase. I think God's bigger than gender. I just think of him as bigger than that. <laughs> Did you hear the contradiction of what I just said? Say more. Well, I can't, I don't really know why I don't feel, I feel like we've been so influenced by art and by anthropomorphism and by a lot of other things that even though we use that word, it carries no meaning. Okay, so Polly said, even though we've been influenced by art and anthropomorphisms, even though we use masculine reference for God, it doesn't mean masculinity in your mind. Right. And I think... In English, we don't have anything besides he or she unless it's a man. This is a tough one, right? Linguistically, we have he, she, or it. And it feels really non-personal because it is. If you refer to a human being as an it, it's pejorative and distancing, right? So what's our linguistic solution? My wonder is if all of a sudden the church changed all of its pronouns from masculine to feminine, would it bother you? Yes, it would. And it does. And say why, because you don't think of God as having a gender and you don't think of him as being masculine so if the church went to hers, why would that, why would that bother you? Because in some ways I'm a very strict traditionalist, and that just hits one of my buttons, and there's no other reason for it. Strict traditionalist hits one of your buttons. Not necessarily a reason, but that's been sort of the lingua franca for a long time. So, so Karen said that the, the, the word man does not mean masculine to her. It really means humanity. Sometimes it can be, but generally, I think it's just mankind. This is a really interesting thing. Uh, Lewis, please. So do you think there's going to be an evolution in the language to be more gender neutral? Because there are many circumstances in our society. Yeah. Is there going to be an evolution in the language in English itself to be more gender neutral? I don't know the answer to that. I know several high schools have made up a hypothetical third case that is gender inclusive. I know it's really difficult, honestly, to say something like, my brothers or sisters, you know, uh, to have to always say ladies and gentlemen. We sometimes get put out by having to make that phrase. I can tell you as a couple, when we thought about how do we maintain our identities in marriage and we thought about hyphenation, we were not willing to do that. <laughs> Mainly because we struggled with whose name came first <laughs> and what that meant. We had this new idea ourselves that was abhorrent to my parents. Um, her parents were very happy with it, uh, which was that we would simply create a new last name for ourselves to show that we had a new common identity. And perhaps we would combine letters from our existing last names to do it. Um, my parents' response was, why do you hate us? Um, which was really confusing. At the end of the day, we said, fine, we'll just keep our names, which has resulted in lots of confusion because my son has my wife's last name, my daughter has my last name. So when Rebecca goes to pick her up, they say, oh, you must be Mrs. Stone. And she says, no, I'm not. And that really throws the person for a loop. And when I go, I'm Mr. Andrews. I finally got him where I said, yes, that's me. I'm Mr. Andrews. Uh, and this is, a, this is an interesting situation, right? And, I just, and, and you're actually going somewhere where I want to go. So this is helpful. I, I don't know the answer. I can tell you what's interesting to think about linguistically is that um, if you read the King James Bible in 1611, think how much our language has changed since then. Interesting about German is that the German language hasn't changed canonically since Luther made the translation into the vernacular. So 
the German language is essentially 500 years old. American English is not that old. Do, do you know what I mean? It constantly updates. So in German, God is called der Herr, which is like the masculine man. This is true in Spanish, if you know, as well. God is called Señor. And what happens when you call God just Dios? It's uncomfortable for, for, for native Spanish speakers. So I don't know what's going to happen evolutionarily. I think it's a great question, though. I do. The truth is, we've already done some evolution, and, and we accepted it. I want you to think through that we now almost universally call people who, who help out in public capacities firefighters. I really think through that. I rarely hear the word fireman. And we fought hard in the 80s for that. Flight attendant has carried the day. I think it has. Uh, wait staff is, is still up in the air. It's, that one's probably in some of the linguistic transition. I think mail carrier, I think mail carrier is, is winning. And I think police officer is winning too. Or cop. <laughs> but I didn't hear police man like I did when I was a little boy in the 80s. You know, I mean, I think we decided, we, we people decided, those words were worth fighting about, and we fought them, and, and, and I, I look at new generation, and these, this is what I hear. I hear mail carrier, and firefighter, and police officer, even though they're clunky. You know, they add syllables to the word. Uh, so, so I don't know the answer. Susan, you had your hand up. I'll tell you that I went to a little Baptist college in North Carolina called Gardner-Webb. It's small, and it's a state Baptist college. That means it's not part of the Southern Con Baptist Convention. It's not part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. So if you know anything about the denomination, it's basically part of the function of all the Baptist churches in North Carolina. It's their school. I mean, it's independent. It has trustees and blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't belong to a national thing. It belongs to a state level. It's almost like having a diocesan college, if that sort of makes sense systematically. And at my school, uh, and I was a religious studies major and a math major, um, if I used a masculine reference for God in a research paper, it was automatically minus one every time. So you had a potential to lose a lot of points, right? And that was to train us because it didn't matter to us labels until we were losing points, <laughs> right? That became really critical. That was to train us uh, really about the fundamental uh, to be cautious. Oddly enough, when I went to United Methodist Seminary, uh, that's Emory in Atlanta, which is, I thought I was going from a small pond into this big lake of scholarship, there was no such gender enforcement. Uh, and faculty were not careful about their words at all. And, and I'm only introducing this concept because I do think it's relevant to the creed, and I think it comes right up front in the creed. And the truth is, um, part of the reason, and I don't just want to speak for one person, but I, but I will speak for one, part of the reason my wife struggles with Christian tradition is because there's no room for women in the liturgy. I know we say, well, the masculine references, they don't mean masculine, but that's all we use, friends. So if you're a little girl, where are women in the liturgy? I'll tell you, they didn't show up one place. Not one time. We don't ever say in our liturgy, she. Nor are we neutral in our liturgy. Now, your priest is naughty. Because your priest includes women in the liturgy, I want you to know. Eucharistic prayer C says, Lord God of our fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your naughty priest says, Lord God of our parents, <laughs> of Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, and Keturah, of Isaac and Rebekah, and of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. And really, I should include Bilhah and Zilhah, the, the, the concubines. I haven't, because that's just onerous. Um, <laughs> it's already lengthy. Why is that important for me? Because I have a daughter. And even if I didn't have a daughter, other people do. And it's been interesting since I've done that change about four years ago. My, when I was the associate rector in Coronado, 
the rector was fine with me doing it. It was super interesting. He was a nice guy that way. You know, he just sort of let me do that. The first time I did it, probably five women on the way out said, this is the first time in my Christian life I felt included in the liturgy. It was a bizarre thing, but very meaningful for them. You know, and part of the difficulty for my wife and for me is having grown up in the evangelical word world, him did mean God was more masculine than feminine, more masculine than feminine. We were positive that since the Bible used only masculine references, that's because God was somehow more masculine. Now think theologically what that means. That means the prohibition against women in ministry, which we believed in, was because women were inferior. Oh, no, they were equal. They were just given different roles. Different meaning women got the crappy ones, right? <laughs> there was this sort of way we grew up that called separate but equal. And, of course, we've, we've, we've decided separate but equal is unequal, right? We've decided that federally. Um, so, so this was an interesting thing. And so for... for for my wife and some other women, and again, I don't want to universalize her experience because it's not universal, there came a point where she felt called to ministry and her church said, no, because you're a woman and God does not employ women in ministry. Women can teach children. In some ways, I do think that's what's at stake here. Well, I don't want to tell you that you, I'm not trying to tell you you have a problem. I want to come back to this first word that we view as masculine and tell you, I don't think the creed is actually making a gender assertion. And I do wonder uh, what's important for us as we think through it. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you. Well, because particularly in that sense, it's an easy change, isn't it? Instead of saying it's right to give him thanks and praise, it's very easy to say it's right to give God thanks and praise, right? I mean, that's an easy switch. People will fight tooth and nail against it. Will fight tooth and nail against it, though, um, sometimes for tradition, but, but, I do, but I do wonder if we aren't in some ways tied to the embodiedness that the tradition represents. And, and you may not be, Polly, you may not be. But, but I do wonder if all of our reference are masculine, if they are, how can we help but think that God is primarily masculine? I mean, again, you may be better at that than I am, I just, but, I, but I wonder and worry about it. I think it's fair. I think it's fair. And, and, I, and I'm positive you've had a different experience. Absolutely positive. And my mother, for example, who I think is older than you, she, um, she, uh, she would think that all of what I'm saying is just silly. But at the same time, she was much closer to her father than her mother. <laughs> she was daddy's little girl. Yeah. Certainly, it is right to give him thanks and praise. Is an We're not talking in the context of, of Jesus. We're talking about God. That's We're right. Talking about God. It's an unnecessary male. And this is, yeah. I wonder what's going to happen when they revise the prayer book again. Because even though we say it's the new prayer book, it is now 41 years old, which means it's due for revision. I just want to let you know, prayer books don't usually last that long, you know. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen with that. And, and I, do, I do think it's, it's worthwhile for us to think, to think about uh, what our words are, are doing for us and for other people. Um, 
I was talking to Morella about one of those other things. This seems like non-related, but a lot of times when we talk about the blood of Jesus, I, I think our language has become so wooden that we actually think the Bible is talking about like real blood. And, and I think we've forgotten that in Bible, blood just means life. And if you're in the disciple study, you've read that about 15 times in the last week in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that you can't drink the blood or eat the blood of an animal because the blood is its life. So again, when we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're really talking about his life, not his, you know, iron, iron blood. And, and in some ways, some ways we've actually gone away from the original intent of the phrase and focused on a very specific, concrete definition of the word. And, and I, the reason I have, in doing this, and you may not care a lick for this, and you might say, God, when are you going to be done talking about this gendered language, is because... I think it happens to us or to enough people that it's worth thinking about. That these masculine-only phrases create a masculine reality in people's minds. And uh, I know that we've had a woman as the presiding bishop of, this, of the Episcopal Church, but there is something called not the glass ceiling, but the stained glass ceiling for women in ministry. That exists. It's real. Yes. The hymnal hasn't really done that yet. And my understanding from my former rector, who was sort of a bigwig, he was almost consecrated a bishop in Virginia, was that when they made the new hymnal in 1981, the, the, the musicians won the day, not the theologians. And they wanted to keep tradition. So there's even some ways we sing songs that are just bizarre to me, like the tune of Away in a Manger. I learned a totally different tune, but they, the musicians insisted on the original one because it was original and right, even though nobody knows it. <laughs> Pay attention to how we sing Away in a Manger. I can't even do it. It's, it's cradle song is the tune that won the day, not the one that goes... Away in a manger, no crib for a baby. We don't sing it that way in the Episcopal Church. Anybody else learn it that way? I learned it that way. <laughs> I always think it's confusing when we sing it on Christmas because I don't know the song. <laughs> I learned enough. Yeah, no, you pick up the hymnal. It didn't include the variant that I just gave you. That's considered a variant. So, so there is a history behind this stuff, and it's, it's a little bit different. Yes, sir. Well, thanks. And, and it, I, I, I think there's a interest, couple interesting other things about exposing bias. So if you're interested in, in, in thinking about biases that you don't even know you have, there's a great book called Blind Spot. And it talks about how, you know, we have blind spots in cars that we're often unaware of. Sometimes we become aware when we run into something in the blind spot. Um, but basically ways that you can see if you have subconscious uh, positive or negative uh, associations between two data sets. I'd hold it up to you as interesting, and you can even try it and see what you think. A um, couple other observations. The most important um, distinguisher between how Congress votes on a women's rights law is, can you guess? Daughters. Is what? Daughters. Yeah, it's not, it's not their party affiliation. It's whether they have a daughter. <laughs> And every Pew study has confirmed that. Remember, Dick Cheney had a lesbian daughter. 
just think through that. And he was representing the moral majority with an openly lesbian daughter, but it was his daughter. <laughs> I mean, just, just think through that. And this is one of the other interesting things that, um, that I've learned both through my wife and having a daughter, and I, and I just beg you to consider is, is how much gender bias is in our language. Right? And then we'll talk about church next, but just think about common culture. Women have different shoe sizes than men, which is bizarre. Why are they smaller? Because women are supposed to be smaller. In some ways, they're diminutive. Women size 10 <laughs> is a men's size 32 in the waist. Why are there different numbers? Again, because women are supposed to be small. I, if I'm not convincing you, that's okay. Um, a little girl who's authoritative is called bossy. A little boy who's authoritative is called a future leader. Think through these things. I have a daughter. I try really hard to tell her, honey, isn't it neat that boys can do most things girls can do? It drives my son crazy. <laughs> but I think it's important for him to hear the other perspective. Yes, sir. So even when you think you're trying really hard to communicate non-bias, I'll never forget we had a young son, a young daughter, and the young daughter looked at the comments, and in the comments there was a female doctor, and she said, she was what, about three, four, 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 and she said, that can't be. Uh -huh. You know, a woman can't be a doctor. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It just blew my mind. Here I'm trying to expand my daughter's horizons and not have her be limited, but somehow she arrived at this all on her own. Yeah, and think through and think through how that's even changed when my mom and my mom was a teacher, when my mom graduated, there were two things women could do. They could be teachers and they could be nurses. And what do you know? Both of those positions were paid extremely poorly. Nurses have started making a lot of money. Men have started becoming nurses. <laughs> um, we could say that's just a silly correlation, but um, a lot of data suggests otherwise. Men have demanded higher wages, and that's why nurses have been paid more. We also have these weird biases like men cannot be elementary school teachers. I don't know if you've run into that one. Well, I think there's, there's fundamental suspicion in a man that would want to teach small children. Listen, we've all probably had them or been around them, but you know what an anomaly that is? We have not had a male teacher at this school. Well, I don't know if we ever have had one. We have? It's been a long time. The only male uh, faculty person at the school is me. <laughs> That's it. And there's 18 other people that work at our school. Now, I don't mean that we discriminate. I mean, in some ways, culture discriminates. And wages discriminate. And I could be wrong. And it's okay. I don't want to try to convince you. But what I do want to say is, I think there's more to um, our verbiage than we let on. And if that's how it functions for us culturally, I think it becomes really important when we get to a document like the Creed and think, might that also be functioning religiously? If you just think through this, I'll tell you that I'm really uncomfortable calling a female priest mother because it feels weird to me. I don't know about you. I understand where it comes from. Now, you know that I'm also not in favor of you calling me father. But in some ways, there's this cultural archetype. I just don't think they're equitable. I don't think mother and father are, are, equitable, are equitable titles for us. Reverend is good, but, but mother feels different from And I don't know if I'm the only one on that. I do know that when women were first ordained, one of the ways that people um, diminished that was by calling them priestesses. Yeah, it sounds cute and funny, but women who were called priestess, it was like they were being uh, called like Wiccans. You're not the priest, you're the priestess. It was extremely hurtful and divisive. 
whether people realized they were doing it or not, the word was not equitable. I don't know if we need to just say clergy. You, 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 or the word reverend or rector, right? Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. But, but it's important. I, I want to tell you, I don't necessarily have the right answers for this, but I do think it's a question we often just skip. So you'll notice that the Psalms at St. Thomas, unless there's a mistake, are gender neutral. I didn't inflict feminine language on you, but I do inflict neutral language on you in the Psalms. Yes, sir. You're talking about biases. I've got to admit to my personal bias. You spent a lot of time uh, in your sermon last Sunday rationalizing an angry and vengeful God. And that is a characteristic that I just have a hard time with. Yeah. And so I tend to not focus on the Father because I would not find an angry and vengeful Father a good Father. Yes. That's the Father I grew up with. Right. Well, and, and, and that's where I think it starts to become helpful now coming back to the creed without spending the whole time talking about this to think about what the patrifamilias does and to think about, you know, for me, similar like buck stops here, disciplinarian, autocratic. Those are words that I want to put with that title. But really, the goal is to ensure the safety and well-being and nourishment and joy of all the family members. If we could somehow come up with a word for that, that's what the creed's talking about. It's our Father in heaven. Or our Mother in heaven. And this is the hard thing that I, I, just, I just want to hit this one last time. Um, I had this friend... She wasn't a friend. Anybody seen, um, anybody seen uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner? It came out in like 1991. Really? This was a big deal. Morgan Freeman was in it. Of course, Kevin Costner shows his behind in the movie. He does that in every movie he's in, I think. Um, there's a witch in the movie with this big white hair. And I went to seminary with a lady who looked just like it. And, and, she, and she had a PhD in... in um, prenatal primal scream therapy. Um, and she was positive that there were um, things hurtful to our psyche that happened to us in the womb, and the way to clear that out was with primal scream. So, so um, we had this word, word talk, because this was back when you know, Ludwig Wittgenstein was really important about you know, the limits and nature of language and things like that. And, and, and we were debating or not whether all experiences are filtered through words or some experience are ineffable, indescribable, right? And, and she was positive that things are ineffable, which is why we just primarily scream to, to get them out, right? Except the problem is when we call an experience ineffable, We've just described it. I mean, this is the problem with language, is that everything we do, we relate to linguistically. So sometimes the limits of our language limit our experience. Does it make sense what I'm saying? And, and sometimes when we can expand our linguistic catalog, we can expand our experiential catalog as well. And, and I did have somebody who said, you know, math was just math until they took calculus and then they realized math was just another language. And that one of the gifts of the church is a gift of language for people to explain, describe, and relate to experiences they've already had with a different vocabulary set. I don't know if that's compelling for you, but it's interesting to think about. And it comes right in the beginning of the creed, if your priest pushes on it. So we believe in one God, the Father, and of course we get the Almighty. And this is from where we start to derive um, these Greek categories that God is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnipresent everywhere at one time. And, 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 and that's a later discussion of this word almighty, or almighty reflects those three bits being combined together in the first line of the creed, if that makes sense. Yes, sir.
It's the Lord's Prayer. First, yeah, second word is Father. It is. And, and in the Lord's Prayer, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is probably using this concept of patrifamilias more than, you know, the role more than the gender identity and things. And that's where I think it's important to double focus on this, right? So the one who is looking after our nourishment and our enjoyment and our education and our upbringing, the one that's in heaven, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, that's kind of a parallel to this. A maker of heaven and earth. A maker's an interesting word. Do you know in the, in the Apostles' Creed what we say instead of maker? Creator. And if you've been with me in, in the Disciple Bible study, you got this really up front in Genesis chapter 1. Um, human beings in the Bible can make things, but human beings in the Bible cannot create things. Uh, the only actor of the verb create biblically is God. I like the Apostles' Creed better on this one. Um, in some ways, I think if you're a scientist, and again, I'm not, I don't want to offend you with my, with my um, ignorance here, but I think the idea of, of creation versus making has to do with like um, thermodynamics, that energy can't be, cannot be um, created or destroyed, because God created it. So what we can do is essentially convert it, but we can't make more, nor can we make less energy. Is that, is that right scientifically? So I think that's the difference between the two words, and it becomes really, really important biblically that if God can create and we, and we don't have that ability, think through it then, whatever God creates, we can't really uncreate either. I mean, that's categorically a higher word. And, and for me, theologically, what that means, and this is true of Judaism, it's become less so of Christianity, when God creates male and female in God's image and likeness, we can't uncreate that. There's nothing we can do to rid ourselves of God's image and likeness. We can act like we don't have it, but we can't accomplish that goal because to accomplish that goal would mean we have the same power God does to change the nature of stuff. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? It's one thing to use stuff poorly, it's another to change it molecularly. But we can destroy it. Can we? Aren't we being told that we're destroying the earth? Can we? Yeah, that's good, right? Aren't we being told that we're destroying the earth? So I think, I think obviously that's using it poorly, but I think going back to the idea we can't destroy energy. And I think going to the, 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 the claim about God's image and likeness, we can kill other people, but we can't destroy their being made in God's image and likeness. We can kill ourselves, but can we kill God's image and likeness in ourselves? I mean, that's, I think those are really good theological questions to ask. There's been a lot of uproar in Germany. When we were there 10 years ago, there was this controversial film in Germany, not controversial in the United States, called Der Untergang, which was like the downfall of the Third Reich. It was about the last two weeks of Hitler. And it showed him being nice to his secretary. And Germans found that extremely objectionable because it was important that he was a monster all the time. He could not ever be nice to anybody because to do that would be to give him some humanity back. But, but I think the theological claim is that even people like Idi Amin, who might be acting in a different way than God made them, can't change fundamentally that, that God made us to be human and to bear God's image and likeness, even if we run from it our whole lives. I know that sounds weird and it might be controversial, but, but I do want to say biblically that's what's at stake in words like create and make. They're not synonyms, biblically. And the creed struggles with that. But the reason you hear begotten is in the authors of the creed's minds, it was not a synonym at all. It's a really confusing word. <laughs> and we'll get there just soon. So let's think about it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Maker of heaven and earth. 
of all things seen and unseen. Right? And again, that's an extreme monotheist position because there were people at the time of the creed who believed that there were more than one God. And there were people at the time of the creed that believed that there were forces fighting one against one another. And this is really important because we've evolved this Christian theological idea that Satan and God are adversaries locked in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And it's always at stake who's going to win this battle in our lives. Anybody grown up with that idea? I'm seeing some nods. I grew up that way. Totally not biblical. <laughs> totally not creedal. If you wonder where Satan came from, God made that. And as a result, there can be no competition. <laughs> right? An uncreated being is not a peer with a created being. There's no peership. There's no rivalry. The book of Revelation makes it extremely clear. If you think that book's a weird book, you're right, but um, not in the ways we've been told it's weird. Uh, the book makes it extremely clear. All of that rivalry that we perceive is going to be burned up like chaff. It's just perceived. It's not real. And that's what's going on here, seen and unseen. So that would include angels, that would include demons, which the Bible actually calls unclean spirits, not demons. Um, the stuff that bothers you, the places you go in the world where the hairs on your neck stand up. God made all that stuff. Um, oddly enough, what that means then too is that some of the things that bother us on earth, again, were created by God and blessed on the sixth day at the latest, including things like viruses. This is tough theology, right? I mean, at the end of the day, did human sin create cancer or did God make cancer cells? That's a really important question. The biblical answer is God made cancer. God made viruses. And God made mosquitoes. Now, I don't share God's view on their goodness. But if you step back, apart from the consequences that they create for us, all those things are very good at what they do. A virus is exceptionally good at what it does. It's just not good for my body. <laughs> but it's good at it. Tectonic plates that move, not always convenient for human beings, right? particularly if you live in the San Andreas Fault area, right? Or if you live near Mount Vesuvius. Um, but it's good for the earth. And my understanding of geology is if we didn't have that stuff, well, the earth would just blow up. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. This is a good, this is an interesting point that, that Dr. Alexander's making, right? We put ourselves at the center of creation, right? So everything is about how good it is or bad it is for us instead of we're one facet out of many. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're stewards of that which God made, but, and, and to, to Susan's point earlier, uh, you know, as a steward, you don't destroy that which you're stewarding. You're expected to use it wisely. Um, but we're not in, we don't own it. Uh, it still is. And it's as he designed it to be. Yeah. So that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That, that we're called to be stewards of God things and not our own. I think I heard that in the 8 o'clock sermon. Uh, that we're called to be stewards of God's things, not our things. Because at the end of the day, what is God's? And what's ours? I mean, it's a good, it's a good, I think it's a good helpful thought. 
perception, as you pointed out earlier, the blood of Christ, or uh, yeah. why did bad things happen to good people, why are there hurricanes and God is an all-caring Father in heaven, and so on and so forth. And a lot of that comes from us anthropomorphizing something that is in no stretch of the imagination a human being or a wise Yeah, so Stephen's saying really that a lot of our, our, our language, and this is the double focus, focus of language, in some ways it helps us understand and relate to experience, at the same time, once we use it, we've now circumscribed the experience, right? So, so this is why the Romantics say all theology is blasphemy, because once we say something, no matter how right it is, we put a limit on something that's limitless. It's a good, it's a good, good thought and a good reminder, and you did say something I totally forgot about, the creed. We believe in one God, the Father. Not our Father, but the Father. And I think that this is a great question when we think about language. The Father of whom? Well, Christians, of course. <laughs> of uh, confirmed Episcopalians. The Father of Episcopal priests who are male, <laughs> who have daughters. I'm just, just sort of joking. It's an interesting thing to think about. Who is God the patrofamilias of? Is, and that's interesting that you said the world, right? Because you didn't even just say all people. You said the world. That's an interesting bit. You know, I don't know if any of you grew up learning that animals don't have souls. Anybody hear that? There won't be any animals in heaven. That's not biblical. Jesus rides on a white horse, um, so there's at least one. Um, but it occurs to me that I care about my dog, and I don't think it's crazy to think that God cares about my dog, too. You, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm pretty sure God is interested in my pet. Uh, I'd be sad if God weren't. I mean, I think this is worth thinking through what we've done linguistically and whether or not the creed makes us do that. Because I don't want to tell you, I, I, don't, I don't know that it does. If God is the creator of all that is, seen and unseen, I mean, don't you care about the things you make? And what does that criterion of care look like? And if we are called, remember the word in Genesis is not dominion over the earth. That's not dominion. That's, that's a poor translation. The word is mashal. We're called to be shepherds over the earth. Stewards is a good word, right? I mean, sheep are, 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 domesticated sheep are not bright. They need a shepherd to help them. And the idea is that our role is to help. <laughs> not to use as we see fit, but to help. And that's just interesting, interesting stuff to think about in the first line of the creed. Okay, um, did I miss anything about God the Father? Yes, sir. The, the thing that I struggle with quite a bit is the concept of the unchanging God. He's been with us forever, and, he's not, and yet our descriptions of him and our focus of his characteristics clearly change as we go from the Old Testament to the New. Yeah, so, so what Bob mentioned is this, this hard idea to think about God being immutable. That's Augustine's word, that God doesn't change at all. And, and in some ways, I think we can say, I think we can maintain that position as long as we say we are mutable. And what that means is our understanding of God sure changes all the, all the time. And, and not necessarily in bad ways, you know. I think sometimes we say, well, the classic must be right. But remember, the classic conception of God revolved around women being property. I'm glad we changed that one, aren't you? I mean, I really, I'm glad. And I'm speaking to a room that includes mostly women. <laughs> um, if, if we were Orthodox Jewish, you couldn't even be in the room. You're not allowed to study the mysteries of the Torah. It's too much for your minds. I don't mean an affront, but I just mean I'm really glad we've come around on that. And, and I think in some ways... Um, it's, it's helpful for us to, to consider, um, again, that God might be immutable, but, but, but we're not. And we can use that, obviously, for better or worse. And it is our view. I mean, somewhere we went from God being Earth-centric to God being universe-centric. 
Yeah. Well, I think when we figured out the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about Jesus next week. Is that okay? No, not next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the church's role of women. In two weeks, I think we're going to do some... Well, okay. Next time we get together to talk about the creator, talk about Jesus. Thanks for your patience. And again, if I totally bothered you, at least you did your penance, right? <laughs>